All right, so let's say good morning. Today's daf is daf samich, page 60. We are going to pick up on Nuntes, on Mutez 59b. We're going to pick up Amarab um, Masna, which is... Uh, so the right place, nice little... So I'm going to have a mass in the 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14 lines up from the bottom. The shear this morning is dedicated by Alan Wiseman in commemoration of the yard site of his father-in-law, Mr. Charles Newman, Zechariah Ben Yisrael Tzvi, and in honor of, of Alan's grandson, Zechariah Wiseman's recent bar mitzvah, who's named for his grandfather, for his great-grandfather. We should hope that in the merit of our Talmud Torah, the Neshama has an aliyah, and the family has incredible, incredible nachas from the Bachar Habar Mitzvah. Okay, so let's, say, so let's pick up. So says the Gemara, Amurav Masna. So remember, again, we're talking about the Mishnah began to discuss the idea of things that we do, things that we do, Mipnei Darke Shalom. So remember, again, as opposed to Mipnei Tikkun Olam that we had in the previous Mishnah, or Mishnah is now talking about Darke Shalom, things that are there to preserve internal communal peace. So the, the piece that we're focusing on now is the fact that the Kohen gets the first Aliyah, Levi gets the second Aliyah, and after that are Yisraelim. And all of this ultimately, again, is to preserve the peace, to preserve the Shalom within, within Klal Yisrael. So Amr Nasno, Hada Amr Beisak Neses, Lo, Lo Amr Ela B'Shabbat Sasyamim Tovim, Tishrichi Radma, Val B'Sheni U'Bechamishi, Lo. So Amr Beisak Neses, something very interesting. This which we said... That, that a Kohen cannot yield, meaning that the Kohen cannot say to someone else, no, you take the first Aliyah, that the order is set. That's only, that's only, first of all, in Shul and Beisach Nesses, and that's only on Shabbos and Yom Because Shabbos and there's a lot of people, and when there's a lot of people, there might be a lot of people vying for Kibudim, and therefore that's where they're concerned that if the Kohen starts to yield, so what could happen? You could have a situation where there's Machlokes. However, again, during the week, a Kohen has the ability to yield if he wants to, because there aren't as many people in shul, and therefore, again, the concern for machlokes is a bit less. So the Gemara says, Ini, is that true? Who was not a Kohen, used to get the first Aliyah, the Kohen Aliyah, on Shabbos and Yom Tev Shul. So it's in Harabosai, in Harav Kahana, we're going to see, it was a great time with Chacham. So apparently it appears that you can yield to someone other than a Kohen, or I should say a Kohen could yield even on Shabbos Yom Tov, to which the Gemara says, no, no, no. Shani Ravuna, Da'apilu Rabbi Ami, Rabbi Asi, Kohani, Chashiv, Deretz Yisrael, Mekev Havu Kaifile. Rav Huna is different, Rav Huna was the God of Hadar, because even Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi, who were again themselves great Rabbanim and Kohanim, and amongst the most important individuals in Eretz Yisrael, were subordinate to Rav Huna. So when somebody is such a recognized, when someone is such a recognized leader, such a recognized Godel, so apparently there is some level of license to go ahead and yield to that individual, which also makes sense. The reason it makes sense is because what are we concerned about? So if, if Aaron Akoin yields, Aaron, Aaron's getting the first Aliyah, and he decides to yield to me. So if he yields to me, someone's going to say, oh, why is he yielding to silver? If he could yield to silver, I can get it all. So that's what his machlokas. What the Imam is suggesting is, 
if the coin ever yields to the Gadol Hadar, so, you know, if Aaron were to yield, uh, to Rav Moshe, right, so then again, no one's gonna say, well, Rav Moshe could get that Aliyah, I can get that Aliyah, because again, it's clear, at the end of the day, that person is a Gadol, to which the Gemara is saying, okay, so Rav is different, Rav was the Gadol, and therefore, by definition, there was not a problem to yield to him. I'm not buying. So we'll say, this is, this is very Halach Lemaisa. I'm not buying, we learned, Ein Sham Kohen, Nisparta Chavila. If there is no coin there, then literally again the robe unravels. Also, which is another way of saying that the order of coin Levi Yisrael is predicated on having a coin first. If there is no coin, then there is no rest of the order. This is a very common misconception that people think that if there is no coin, you give the first aliyah to the levi. It's not true. Once there is no coin, then it's all bets are off. There is there is no order anymore. Anyone could get. I mean, you can give a levi that first aliyah if you want to, but you could also give Yisrael that first aliyah. Meaning, once the coin is not there. Rashi says, Nisparta Chavila, Nifsak HaKesher, literally the knot has come undone. Ibei Talibiyas Kvodo, Bishel Chavila Sanifredes, Ve'ino Kori Klaus. So Rashi's first, Rashi's first understanding over here is that where there's no Kori, remember, the Levi, the Levi, this, and this is no, this is no offense to the Levian, but the, 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 the covet of the Levian is a derivative of Kohanic covered. So if there is no Kohanic covered, meaning if there's no Kohen there, then by definition there's no specific honor accorded to the Levian. So Rashi's first understanding of Mispar de Chavila is if there's no Kohen, then ultimately again the lady doesn't get an Aliyah at all. Kach Amar Mori Zakein, Mori Rabbi Yitzchak Ben Yehuda, V'chinsidir Rav Amram, Aval Mitamidei Mori Rabbi Yitzchak, Kalevi Shamati Mishmo, Shein Seidr Ladaver, Lahaktim Levi Yisrami Sheyir Tiyaktim. So Rashi has two versions as to what Mispar de Chavila means. According to the first version, Mispar de Chavila means we do not give the Levi an Aliyah. Meaning, if there's no coin, the levy does not get an aliyah. According to the second version, what it means is, you don't have to give the levy an aliyah. Meaning, there is no order. And therefore, Allah Chalamais, whoever you want to give an aliyah to, you have that ability. Abai said, furthermore, we learned, Ain Sham Levi Kori Kohen. If there's no levy there, you call up a coin for the levy aliyah. Ini, is that so? You should never call up one coin after another. Why not? Because here's the problem. If you call up one coin after the other, then it looks like what? It looks like you found out that there was some kind of genealogical problem with the first coin. And therefore, again, he's not really a coin. Before we called up the second guy to be the real coin. Levi acha levi lo yikra. Assuming you can't go ahead and call up a levi after a levi. Why? Because... Ultimately, you are casting aspersions. You are casting aspersions on the lineage of both of them. So Rashi says over here, So we'll say, so if you call up Levi after Levi, so if you call up coin after coin, it casts aspersions on the lineage of the first one. If you call up Levi after Levi, it casts aspersions on both of them. Maybe the first one wasn't a Levi, and therefore you're calling up the second one. Maybe the first one was a Levi, and you're calling up the second one because he's not really a Levi, he's Yisrael. So says the Gemara. So therefore, again, how could the Gemara say before that if there is no Levi, that you call up a coin for the second Aliyah? Oh, to which the Gemara says, Ki kaminon, ba'osa coin. Or I will say what it means is that if there is no Levi, it doesn't mean we call up a second coin. Rather, what does it mean? We call, that we say that same coin who had the first Aliyah, 
he stays up for the Levi Aliyah as well. So the Gemara says, Maishna, and I'll say, again, this is all halakha lemaisa. Maishna, Levi, Acha, Levi, Di, Ika, Pigam, Shneihem. Why is that if you call Balevi after Alevi, the Gemara is concerned that you've taint, you, you've cast aspersions on both of their, on the lineage of both of them. Because we're, because we're concerned that somebody's gonna say one of them is not a Levi. I, why don't you say the same thing, Koinacha Koinami? Amrichad Minaihu Lav Koinhu. Why don't you say the same thing, Sibos saying the Koinacha Koin? What's interesting is, the concern is, people automatically assume that the first guy's not a Koin. Well, why don't you say that a Koinacha Koin? The concern is also that both of them. Maybe people will say, the second guy's not a Koin. To which the Yemar says, Kigon de Muchsak Lan Bavua de Haisheni de Koinu. The case that we're dealing with is where everyone knows that the guy, the second coin called up, he has a chazaka that he's a coin. We know that his father is a coin. Why don't you say it's sitting by the, by the Levi case that the Levi Acha Levi is where the second Levi, his father is also a has a coin. Ella, Amri Mamzeres on a Sina Nasif, Upasli Lazare. Rather, what we are concerned about is that what? Maybe the father married someone he's not allowed to and therefore disqualified his offspring. So say the same thing by the coin. Maybe, maybe the first one went ahead and his father married a grusha chalitza and therefore disqualified the offspring. Sof, sof. So we'll say again. So here's the interesting idea. You know, if the father of a coin messes up and marries somebody he's not allowed to, the offspring of will say, it's not the pshat that if you're messed up genealogically as a Kohen, then all right, you know, you're second best, you become a lady. In other words, that once he's disqualified from being a Kohen, that genealogical disqualification takes away all membership, so to speak, within Shevet Levi. Ulaman. And who are we concerned about? So we'll say, so now remember, so now essentially what we have is, you can't call up two Kohanim successively because we're concerned that you're going to cast dispersions on the first. You can't call up a Levi Akhalevi because we're concerned you're going to cast dispersions on both of them. Now we'll say, now who are we, who, who are we worried about? Meaning, so the Gemara's Ulaman, Ilyoshvin Hakachazuleh. So we'll say, if the people who are in the shul, so they see what's going on, Rashi says, Hakachazuleh, Lahai Koin Rishon, the Sakhum Yeshiva. They will say, now, if it's the people in the shul, so they see what's going on. And so we'll say, here's the Chap. How do you know that, how, how will they know that ultimately, again, there's no genealogical problem when they see that both Kohanim who are called up are both considered to be part of the order of the seven, they'll recognize ultimately again that both in fact are genealogically fit. So who are we concerned about? Ella Liotzin. We'll say, who are we concerned about? For the group we're normally concerned about, the people who leave shul early. So we'll say, the people who leave shul early, they only see part of the picture. So they go ahead and they see two Kohanim, one after the other, but they don't see that though both of them counted as both as part of the seven Aliyos, they will assume that the second one was called up because the first one was genealogically disqualified. This is a very interesting discussion. So now that we've established the proper order for Kohen Levi, who should get the third Aliyah? Meaning now, what's the precedence for Yisraelim? So we've established there's a precedence, Kohen Levi Yisrael, within the camp of Yisraelim, who ultimately, again, gets the first Aliyah. When we say first Aliyah, we're really referring over here to the third Aliyah, to Shlishi, Shlishi and on. So the Gemara says, He didn't know the answer to this. He went to ask Rabbi Yitzchak Nafcha. And Rabbi Yitzchak said the following, this is amazing. Korin, so we'll say, so after Kohen Levi, who's next? Who the first Israelim that should get in Aliyah? Tamidi Chachamim, who have leadership positions. We'll say, now, understand what Chazal are expressing over here, and this is quite amazing. Being a Tamid Chacham is very nice. It's a very important thing. 
But what's important is to be a Talmud Chacham who serves the community. So therefore, again, who gets Shlishi? Not the greatest Talmud Chacham. Isn't that interesting? Who gets Shlishi? The Talmudi Chachamim who serve the community. They get Shlishi. Next, who's after them? Talmudi Chachamim Malatibor. After them are Talmudi Chachamim who are fit to be appointed to leadership positions, but are not occupying those leadership positions. Next, Vacharein. After them are the children whose fathers are Tamidi Chachamim in leadership positions. After them, Bacharein, Rashi Knesios, lay leaders. Lay leaders are both sides. So people, again, you know, with the executive board, and then after that, again, the general board, the lay leaders, the people who participate, again, in the community, the Chal Adam, and then after them, everyone else. So we'll say it's amazing, by the way, how important, how important, at least the Gabi Kriya Satora, is measured by one's involvement in community. So if you're a Tamut Chacham involved in community, you go first, and we work our way down, down the leadership chain. So the Bnei Galil sent Rabbi Chalbo the following question: Can we read from Chumashim in Shulchan Aruch? And what are Chumashim? Rashi says she Chumashim sheyish shekos from the hand chamisha Chumashim kol chumish echad sholim latzmo v'chos shevayim megillas. What would they do? So remember, it's it, it, you can't you can't write a safer Torah for every single person. So what do they have? The same way that I have a chumish bereishis chumish mos. They wrote a scroll. A Bereshis, a scroll of Shmos. So this expression is Parashas Shuma. Is it okay if we just take out the Shmos scroll and read that B'tzibor? Can we do Kriyasa Torah from that? So the Gemara says, So he didn't know the answer. So they came and they asked, He didn't know either. So they came and they asked in the base manager, Sefer Torah. Shechasi Yiriya Achos in Korinbo. So we'll say they, 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 they answer this question through another ruling. That the Shlobar Achmani says, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, that if you have a Sefer Torah that's missing a section, you may not go ahead and read from it. Now, both say, now the assumption over here is what? If a Sefer Torah that's missing a section is not fit for Kriya, then what? It's not kosher for Kriya B'tzibor, then what? then certainly a scroll that only has one chumash in it is also not going to be fit for use in the tzibor. Yeah. To which the Gemara says, no, that's not a good answer, and I'll tell you why. Velohi, hasam mechsar b'milseh. Hacha lo mechsar b'milseh. But say it's a fundamental distinction, which is what? You see, the Sefer Torah that's missing a section is deficient. So I understand why you can't read from a deficient scroll, but Sibor. Well, say when you have a, a Shmos scroll, what's the chap over here? It's not deficient. It's complete for what it's supposed to be complete with. Meaning, we don't call it deficient because it doesn't have the other four chamishay chamishay Torah. Why don't we call that deficient? Because that's not its purpose. Right? Its purpose is just to be the scroll ultimately again for one chumish. Therefore, perhaps you should be able to read from it. Rav, Rav Yossi, Dermotar Vayhu, Ein Korin B'Chumashin B'Vesak Neses. So Rav and Rav Yossi both said, no, we do not read from Chumashin. I'll say again, remember, a chumish in this context means a scroll of one safer of the chumish. Why? Mishum Kavarat Sibor. Because Rav say ultimately again, this is not proper Kavarat Sibor. Not proper, honestly, for, for the proper covet of the tzibor, you should read from a proper Sefer Torah. This is very interesting for us. So also they said, you're not supposed to read from a Haftorah book. A book of Haftorah. So what do they used to have? Same thing we have today. 
a scroll that just had Haftoros. So let's remember again, you could write a scroll with all of the Nevi'im in it, or you could take each Shabbos, right? Bereshis I take from here, right? Shnoach I take from here. So they had a scroll of Haftoros. So the Gemara says over here, Rabbi Rabbi Yosef say, that you should not read from the Haftorah scroll on Shabbos. Why? It's actually interesting, because ultimately it's not supposed to be written like that. What, what does that mean? So Rashi points out, because when recording books of Tanakh, each book is supposed to be recorded in totality, and you're not supposed to record partial sections. So to just go ahead and write down, to just go ahead and write down a section of Haftorah is not right. By the way, also it's Muktzah. Right? Not, not only can you not read from it, because, right? but you, it's also Muktzah. So my time, huh? Suppose it's actually interesting. So working backwards, why is it Muktzah? Because it's not usable. Since you're not supposed to read from it, therefore again, it serves no purpose. Because it serves no purpose, therefore it's Muktzah. But this is not a correct ruling. You are in fact permitted to go ahead and carry it. And you are in fact permitted to go ahead and read from it. So, Rabbi Yochanan, Vresh Lakish, Ma'aini b'sifra da'agarata b'shavis, v'haloni t'nekasev, but we'll say the Rai is, Rabbi Yochanan, Vresh Lakish, they used to learn from Agarata on Shabbos. So we'll say, so what's a sefra Agarata? So somebody wrote down the different homiletic teachings. Now we'll say, this is even stronger, why? Because this is Torah Shabbal Peh. Torah Shabbal Peh is not supposed to be recorded in writing. It's Baal Peh, it's the oral tradition. And yet, Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Shlokish used to learn from written Agarata on Shabbos. So first of all, it shows us that, it's, it's, remember, the Gemara is comparing this. It's not supposed to be written, but it was written, and therefore, and, yet, and nevertheless, what? It's not Muktzah. To which the Gemara says, Ella, so we'll say, so why do we allow, why do we allow the writing down of Torah Shabbat? Because there is no alternative. What's the no alternative? Rashi says, Because we'll say, if we don't write down Torah Shabbat, then what happens? It's forgotten. So we'll say, because it's forgotten, Rashi says again, so we'll say, so this Pasuk, again, this Pasuk of Eisla, Sos, Lashem, Yifaru, Sorosech, and Tehillim is a very important Pasuk. It's what Chazal Darshan, Eisla, Sos, Lashem, there are times that you need to take dramatic action for God, Yifaru, Sorosech, even though that dramatic action sometimes runs contrary to some already established law, sometimes we have to violate something smaller, in order to preserve something bigger. So the same way that although Torah Shabbat is not supposed to be written down, we allowed it to be written down because if not, it will be forgotten. So the Gemara So to over here by the Aftoras, look at Rashi Hachanami, She'ein l'chol tzibor, v'tzibor yecholas lichtov neviim shalim. Every tzibor couldn't afford to write a whole sefer of Nach. So therefore they had to, they could only afford a sefer of Haftoros. Therefore again, because there was no alternative, therefore we did it. So also you should know, this still people some contemporarily hack about this a little bit. So again, it's different by us, because therefore some people are makbed to dafka use 
an entire nach, right? Although, again, if you look at really with the spirit of Chazal, they're not really arguing in book form. Meaning, once you're in book form, you're already in a totally different parasha. They're talking about scroll form. But nevertheless, again, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with using the Haftorah book, the Haftorah book, as clearly indicated by the Gemara over here. But again, you could see where there's room to say that perhaps using a full safer of Nevi'im perhaps could be a little bit preferable. Although, again, it's not a clear shot. The reason why it's not a clear shot is because the Gemara is talking about in scroll form. Again, once you get into book form, that's all another discussion. Okay. But when Abai me Rabba, both say another interesting idea. So Abai asked from Rabba, Ma'al lichtov migil latinok So are you permitted to write down a scroll for a child to learn from it? And both say, now what this means over here is, so I want to teach my child the uh, of Noah. Can I just write a Noah scroll? Can I just write a Noah, Noah scroll? So Tiboy Lamandar, so this this is this is a this is a separate discussion. What this is asking over here is, is there some kind of problem with just writing partial parts of the Torah? So the Yamar said the following Tiboy Lamanda Amr. Megillah, Megillah, Nitna. Tibay Lamanda Amr, Torah, Chasim, Nitna. Both saying, I hear the Gemara is getting into a fundamental machlokas about how the Torah was recorded. Look at Rashi. Megillah, Megillah, Nitna. Kishinem, Raparshal, Moshaya, Kosva. Ulubasof, Memshan, Kishinig, Murukala, Parshal, Schibran, Begidin, Betafran. So both say, the first step is Megillah, Megillah, Nitna means that Moshe Rabbeinu recorded the events of the Torah as they occurred. So if you can imagine again, Moshe Rabbeinu, over the course of 40 years, is writing on different sections of parchment. And when we get ultimately again to Vizos at the end of his life, he binds, he ties all the pieces of parchment together, gives that Sefer Torah to the Levium, and that's the Torah. That's Megillah, Megillah, Nitna. He recorded it literally as it was occurring. Versus, again, Torah Chasum, Nitna. Rashi says, Lo sof mem, la'achar shene'em rukala parashios kulon. means Moshe doesn't write anything down until the end. Doesn't write anything down until the end. So this shaila as to whether or not you could write one parsha to teach your child is a shaila according to both opinions as to how the Torah was recorded. How so? Also, this is I always thought this is really like it's just a, if you think about this, it's a fascinating machlokas. It's a fascinating machlokas about the evolution of Torah. So did Moshe Rabbeinu write it down as it was occurring? I don't know, it's just very exciting to think about this. So the Gemara goes right there. The Gemara says the following. Let's analyze this. So if you go according to the opinion that says Torah was recorded, it was written down piece by piece, Megillah, Megillah. So Keva de Megillah Nitna. Kosvin. So we'll say, I want it and I could say that since the Torah was originally recorded piecemeal, therefore what? I have the right now to write it down piecemeal. So I could make a skull for Parshish Noach to give to my kid to learn. Oh, Dilma, or the other hand, I could say, Keva de Idbek Idbek. That's true, Torah, Megillah, Megillah, Nitna. But now that it's all kind of literally stuck together, meaning once it's completed, you can't write a partial part of the Torah. So, so again, according to the opinion, the Torah was given at once. Moshe wrote it all down at once. So do we say that since the Torah was given as a unit, therefore you can't write down a partial part of it? Or do we say that again, like we said before, I can't give every single kid his own Torah. I can't, I mean, it's not practical to do that for a variety of reasons. So what's the alternative? How is a child going to learn Torah? So the only possibility is that we must have the license to record each Parsha by itself. To which the Gemara says, 
So the Paskin, we can't, we cannot record a partial, a one partial of the Torah in a scroll. What's the reason? This is great. What's the reason we don't do it? Because you can't do it. This sounds like a conversation we've all had with our kids, right? And, and our parents have had with us. So look at Rashi. Lefisha in Kosin Rashi says, The idea of what the Gemara is essentially saying is that even if you say the Torah was given piecemeal, it was recorded piecemeal, once the Torah was, was, was literally created as a cohesive unit, it can no longer be broken up in different parts. So the Gemara is defining, is that true? Eisve, let's ask a kashan, this was a back to our Sota days. Afi, asesat tavla shalzav, sheparsha sota ksuvalov. We'll say one of the things that Helene Amalka made was a golden tablet upon which Parsha Sota was written on, so that the Kohen could go ahead and write down Parsha Sota. So what is this an example of? This is a, a recording of a partial Parsha. See, Sylvia, that they had, remember, the way the Gemara is ending off right now, what the Gemara is trying to say is, you can't write down a Parsha of the Torah by itself. It's either all or nothing. So Mar says, not true. Helene Amalka commissioned the creation of this golden tablet that just had Parsha Sota on it and nothing else. So from here you see you can record a partial portion of the Torah. They didn't actually write Parsha Sota on it. They wrote like the first letters. Aleph Beis means they, made, they, they wrote like the first letters. Rashi Tevos. Like the first letter of each word to jog the coin's memory about how to write Parsha Sota. But yet again, the Brisa says that when the coin would write the Parsha Sota to dissolve in the water, he would look at the tablet, excuse me, and he would see in the tablet what was written there, and that would jog his mind, and, and he would copy it. So, well, so again, it sounds like what? That literally the entire Parsha Sota is written on the tablet. It doesn't literally mean that he saw what was written, but rather he saw like the hints that were written on the tablet and that jogged his memory like what was written in the parsha. Again, other parsha. But yet again, it says explicitly that the Quran would write the parsha sota. He would look at the golden tablet. He would see what was written there and he would copy it. So it sounds like again it's written to which the Gemara says. Uh, so, so what did it see on the tablet? So I'll say ultimately, again, what happened? So the idea is on the tablet, it didn't write the full psukim. What it did was it wrote the beginning of the Pasuk and the end of the Pasuk. The idea is it wrote enough on the tablet to jog the memory of the Kohen without having to write the portion in totality. Therefore, again, this golden tablet in no way stares what we just said earlier, namely, that you can't record one parsha of the Torah by itself. The Gemara says, Kitanai. In reality, this is a machlokis tanoim. So we'll say, you understand, this is a major machlokis because this has, this has exceptional educational impact. Right, because now what we're trying to figure out is the method by which, you can, again, let's be clear, it's, it's not, it's not the biggest deal in the world, meaning the question is, you know, do you need the children to come to Shul, to come to the base marriage, take out the Sifrei Torah, and learn from the Sifrei Torah? Or again, is, bless you, or is there some possibility for giving each child his own scroll? So, Kitanoi, in Kosin Megillah, you can't write a scroll for a child to learn from. Again, Abbas, when we say a scroll, we mean a scroll, bless you, that does not possess Chamishay Chumshay Torah. Vim Daito Lahashlim, 
mutter. So this is very interesting. But, but, if you want to go ahead, if your intent is to at some point in time finish it, then it's mutter. Those both say, if I'm writing a Sefer Torah, and I want to go ahead and start off with Parshish Noach. No, the Parshish Torah, you do not have to write in order. So if I want to write the one Parsha first, and my kid's learning Noach, so I'm going to start with that, I'm going to give it to him now. But I'm going to finish it as time goes on. I Meaning my goal is to finish the entire Sefer. So the first opinion says, that's fine. That's fine. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Huda Omer, Rabbi Huda, on the other hand, says that what? That Lamai say you could write partial sections, but they must be complete. Then you have to write units. So, for example, if you're going to go ahead and write Bereshis, you have to write Bereshis up until the story of the flood. Why I say because that's called the unit of creation. Similarly, if you're going to write in Sefer Vayikra, you have to write from Vayikra until Parsha Shmini. These are considered to be units. So, so again, this is the Machlokis as to whether or not you could record partial, partial sections of the Torah. Rabbi Yochanan now goes back. Let's go back because now the Gemara touched on a, a really important Machlokis about how was the Torah given. And Rabbi said, lest you say, well, why is it so important? I mean, it, it's interesting, but it's not really important. It is important. Why? Because this Machlokis really lays the foundation as to how we are able to write scrolls today. So Rabbi Yochanan Shrabina says, Torah was given in portions. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu recorded it as it occurred. Shana Amar, as Amarti, Hinebasi Bimegilas Sefer Kasuvalai. This is the interesting raya. The raya is from Sefer Tehillim that David Amalek calls the Torah a Megillah. So because he calls it a Megillah, the understanding of that is what? That Lamaisa, again, it was recorded in partial form. Moshe Rabbeinu wrote it as it happened. Torah was given, Torah was only recorded at the end of Moshe Rabbeinu's life. So remember, Moshe Rabbeinu retained all of the information, and at the end of his life, he wrote it all down together. That Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Bnei Levi, to take the Sefer Torah, which we understand to mean that that's referring, the difference between a Sefer and a Megillah is what? A Megillah is a partial, a Sefer ultimately is a complete, complete item. So therefore take the Sefer, meaning Moshe Shavinu only recorded it when it was complete. So V'idach, but the first opinion, Amihak Sivla Koach, what is the first opinion? What, is, what does Rabbi Yochanan say about the fact that it says Sefer? Okay, it's called the Sefer. When is it called the Sefer? At the end of Moshe Rabbeinu's life, when he takes all the individual Megillahs and he connects them together, then what? Then it's called the Sefer. But what does, what does Rabbi Yochanan, what does Reish Lakish do? With the fact that David Amal calls the Torah a Megillah. No, 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 that's different. That David Amal is saying that the entire Torah is also called the Megillah. What do you see? I see a floating Megillah, and in this case over here, the Megillah is a reference to the Torah. So in other words, to which, will say, to, to which Rabbi Yochanan will say, to which Rabbi Shimon Rishlakish will say, yes, the Torah is sometimes referred to as a Megillah, but that doesn't, that doesn't tell us anything about how the Torah itself was recorded over time. Alternatively, you could refer to what Rabbi Levi said. Rabbi Levi, this is quite interesting. Perhaps also the Megillah idea refers to the fact that at certain points in history, certain partials were written, even though they were not contiguous partials. So for example, on the day that the Mishkan was erected, 
The following parshios, eight parshios, were said on that day. And what were they? Eluhim, parshas Kohanim, the parsha of Kohanim, parshas Leviim, parshas Tameim, the halachos of Tumantara, parshas Shiluach Tameim, the halachos of sending the ritually impure out of the camp, parshas Acharemos, of all of Yom Kippur, the laws of drinking wine, while or not drinking wine, while serving the base of Mikdash, Parshas Neros, the laws of the menorah, Parshas Paraduma, the Parsha Paraduma. Amr Belazar, Torah, so what I saw again, fine. So for the other possibility, just so you understand what that just was, so the other possibility is when the Torah is referred to as a Megillah, so it's referred to, what it's referring to is that on the day of the Mishkan, on the day of the Mishkan, eight parashas are given. I will say, I understand what that means. So if you hold, this is really quite, this is quite fascinating. If you hold Torah Chasuma Nitna, so the fact that eight parshios were given on the day that the Mishkan was erected, fine, very interesting. If you hold Torah Megillah Megillah Nitna, what that means is what? Now, both say these eight parshios are not consecutive in the Torah, which means that what happened is that Moshe Rabbeinu recorded, wrote down eight different sections, kind of put them in his Sefer Torah binder. And then, over the course of the next number of years, arranged them in their right places, which is quite amazing. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. About a muktam Torah, maybe it has to do with the way, the, the fact that we know that Moshe Rabbeinu, if you hold Megillah, Megillah, Nitna, we know that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote down certain things out of a, out of a sequential order. I don't know, that's, that's fascinating. All right, that's your homework. All right, good. All right, that, that's, uh, I don't, that's a good, that's, a good, that's an excellent ta'ara. So I'll say, so, all right, so let's continue. Vaiter, second line, Samach Nama Beis. I'm going to have a lot of So I'll say, this is also interesting ideas. Torah, Rov, Bichsav, Umiyot, Apeh. The Torah, the majority of what we know is from the text, is from the text, and a minority is from Torah Shabbat. And I'll say, now, what does it mean? Take a look at Rashi. Rov, now, what does it mean, Rov, Bichsav? Rov, Ha, Torah, Teluya, Bamejah, Shekzuva, so both say, Sir Belazar is saying that the majority of Torah, the majority of laws that we have, are learned out from the text applying the Yud Gimomidos, right? Applying the uh, 13 exegetical principles, right? Of Klaluprat, Gzeru Shava, Binyan Av, all of those things. Umiut, umiut piksav, Rashi says over here. What does it mean? Umiut, umiut apeh. Shein remez lalami la Torah el emotion em rapeh. So both says, says, the majority of halachos are learned out by dashing the text, and the minority of halachos are learned out from what we call halachal emotion misinai. But Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan says, rov alpeh umiut piksav. Both say this is interesting. So Rabbi Yochanan says, nope, not true. The, the majority of the halacha we have is actually what. Halacha Lamosha Misinai, and the minority of it is darshaned from the actual text itself. So the Gemara says, Shneimar Apia Dvarim Ha'ila. I actually skipped the passage by Rabbi Lazar. Shneimar Echtov Lo Robi Torasi Kimozar Nechshavu. Literally, I wrote for them the majority of my Torah, but they treated it like a stranger. Rabbi Yochanan Joshua Ki Apia Dvarim Ha'ila Ve'idach. I. So what does Rabbi Yochanan do with the passage that says Haksiv? Echtov lo rubi sorasi. What does he do with the pasuk that indicates that the majority of the Torah is from the written law? Hahu atmuhi kametame. This is a chalishparuk wondering out loud. Echtov lo rubi torasi. Should I write down the majority of my Torah for you? Halo kimar zarenachshavu. The part that's written, you don't, you treat like a stranger, you treat like a foreigner. Ve'idach. The other opinion. I'm yaksiv ma'ila. What does he do? I will say, what does Rabbi Lazar do with Rabbi Yochanan's pasuk of Apiyad Varamayla? Hahu mishum detakifi le migmerinu. 
He understands Rabbi Osai that the laws, the halachos of Moshe Misinai, are much more difficult to learn than the laws that are recorded bichsav. Then that, that makes a lot of sense. Why does it make a lot of sense? Because the laws that are written bichsav, the laws that are in bichsav, you have a text in which you are able to darshan. As opposed to what? As opposed to the laws, ultimately, again, that, you know, the conversation regarding halacha l'moshe misinai usually goes like this. Gemara discusses a halacha, says halacha l'moshe misinai, and conversation's over, right? That's pretty much it. So sometimes it's hard to grasp those halachos because we don't have the text with which to engage in halachic discourse. So Rabbi Yehuda Bar Nachmani, who was the Torgiman, who was the, literally the translator, but it really means the spokesperson, for Rabbi Shemar Lakish, Darshan the the Pasuk says, write for yourself these things, Uksiv, but yet it says, literally, that, that through the, literally through the oral transmission of these things. What he's doing over here is he's contrasting two psukim. sounds like, again, the Torah has to be written. sounds like that the bulk of it is oral. So the Gemara says, Haki, so what's the Pshat? Those things that are committed to writing, one should not say Baal Peh. One should not say by heart. Dvarim she'Baal Peh, And things that are transmitted orally should not be confined to writing. And we'll see, look at your Ashi for just a moment. Dvarim she'amarti l'chav b'ksav, Now God is talking to Moshe over here. And God is saying to Moshe, things that I gave you in writing, you should teach to Kali Yisrael in writing. Udvarim she'Baal Peh, i atarash she'lekosvan, Mikan atalamod shatalmud lo nitam mikasev elam ibnei shatvarim mishtakachas. And similarly, again, things that are transmitted orally should not be committed to writing. Therefore, again, Torah Peh should really remain al Peh, Baal Peh, and the only license to record it in writing is why? Is if there's a concern, there's a fear that it may come to be forgotten. So the Gemara says, Dei Rabbi Yishmael Tana, Eila Eila, so, they, so in, in, in the Yeshiva Rabbi Shmuel, they went and they say, finally, they contrasted Eila, Eila atakosev, viatakosev halacha. So we'll say, Eila so advarim. These are the things that you have to go ahead and write, but you can't write anything else. You can't write halachas, lamosh shemisinai, and you can't write down to our Shabbat. Amr Rabbi Yochanan, lo karas hakadosh baruch hu bris im Yisrael, Ella b'shul dvarim shabapeh. Well, it's actually a very beautiful gemara. Rabbi Yochanan says that the real covenant, the real bris that Hakadosh Baruch Hu affected with us, is only because we accepted the Torah shabapeh. Shana emar, because the pasuk says, "Api hadvarim ha'ila karasi itcha bris es Yisrael." Because of these things, I these things being a reference to Torah shabapeh, I have made a covenant with you. So, what's it? Just so you understand on a pashut level, what's the pshat? So the gemara is saying because we accept the Torah shabapeh. That's really why HaKadosh Baruch Hu made a covenant with us. In other words, Torah by itself is nice, but the real covenant is Torah What's the Pshat? It's a very simple idea. You know, Torah it's written. That which is written, it's much easier to believe in, it's much easier to subscribe to. The fact that we are willing to subscribe to the notion of Torah which I both say the only thing we have to rely on Torah is that Moshe Rabbeinu received it from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that represents true emuna. That represents true faith. You know, if it's written, the written word has a certain reality to it. So the fact that we accepted that, understandable. But that we accept Torah Shabbat Peh, says, if you're going to accept my Torah Shabbat Peh, 
that, that level of trust, that level of emunah, that's what HaKadosh Baruch Hu created ultimately, or that's, it's based on that level of trust, that level of emunah, that our covenant with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is effective. A little bit weiter. So we'll say back to the Mishnah. So remember again, the Mishnah said that we keep the Erev Chatseros in the same home because of Dark Shalom. So the Gemara says, my time, what's the reason? Now what does that mean? So we'll say, if you want to say it's about covet, that we were afraid that if we move the Erev Chatseros to someone else's home, then what? It's going to be a slight to the covet of the Balabas, so the, who originally housed it. So the Gemara says, well, if that's the case, Ahushipura, so we say, so what about the Shipura? So we say, the Shipura is talking about the, the shofar of Erev Shabbos. Remember, the Gemara Masech Shabbos discusses that they used to sound a number of different shofar blasts, a number of different shofar blasts, over the course, ultimately, of Erev Shabbos to indicate the arrival of Shabbos. So we say, so that, that shofar used to be stored at the home of the Rosh Hashiva. And when the Rosh Hashiva died, they took it to the home of the next Rosh Hashiva, and so on and so forth. So you see from here, you take something that's very important, and you're transferring homes, and yet we're not concerned about what? About offending anyone's covet. To which the answer is, The issue over here is not because of covet. The answer over here is because of chashad. In other words, what does that mean, Abosai? That if over the last number of years we've kept the Arab in someone's home, and then someone walks into the home, let's say they kept it in the Schwartz home, and someone walks into the Schwartz home on Arab Shabbos, and what? Or on Shabbos, and doesn't see the Arab, people will assume that what? That there is no Arab. They won't know about the change of location. Therefore, in order to avoid any level of suspicion of wrongdoing on the part of the members of the Chatzar, we keep the Arab in the same place all the time. Vaiter. Barashukar of La'ama. So let's remember again, the next thing the Mishnah said is that if you have a bunch of farmers, a bunch of fields that are, that are literally on the, off the channel. So remember again, each field has to irrigate. Each field has to irrigate. The way they irrigate is they siphon off the water from the channel. They dam off the channel and they take the water into their own field and then again pull up the dam and allow the water to continue down. So the Gemara discussed who gets the first, uh, who gets, I don't know, it doesn't sound right, but who gets damming rights? Does that, does that make sense? Alright, it's gonna, it's gonna. Yeah, cool. <laughs> right? I, I, so who gets damning rights first? So again, whoever, who, the first field, so to speak, on the, on the course of the channel, gets damning rights first. So the Gemara says the following. Itmar b'nei na'ra. So let's say when you have a number of fields situated alongside a river, so who gets damning rights first? Rav Amar Tassoi Shasumai Bresha. Rav says ultimately, again, the field, the field most downstream gets damning rights first. Shmuel says, no, the, f- the field most upstream gets damning rights first. So the Gemara says, let's analyze this. So I'll say, if the field has the, if the, if the river has the ability to go ahead and just continue to flow. Now what does it mean? Look at Rashi. Rashi says over here, So we'll say, if in order to irrigate the fields, you don't have to dam off the river, but rather everyone could just draw off water without damming off the river, then everyone agrees that anyone could take the water whenever they want. Where does the argument come up? Keep ligi, b'miskar ve'ashkuye. So we'll say, so Machlokas comes up when literally they have to dam up the river in order to divert the river into the field. Shmuel amra ilay shasumai b'resha. So Shmuel says, the field most upstream has the ability to dam it off first. Da amri, because they say, we are the closest to the source of the river. Therefore, again, we get water rights first. 
Rav says, no, the field most downstream gets damning rights first. Why? Because, again, let the water flow as it's supposed to. We are downstream. And therefore, again, if you let the river flow naturally, we would be naturally the first ones to be able to receive the water. So, Tnan, we learned, Bar HaKarov La'ama, Yet we learned in the Mishnah that Rabosai, again, when you have fields that border on the channel, so whoever's irrigation ditch is closest to the channel, he has the ability to go ahead and dam off the channel first and take the water. Why? So the Gemara says, so we'll say, so Shmuel understood that according to Rav, what this means is, this is just an ama, this is a channel that naturally fills up the pit. You don't have to dam off anything. So we'll say, if that's the case, at the end of the day, that the channel naturally fills up the pit. So why does the Mishnah tell me that the, guy, the first guy has the right to fill up his pit first? I mean, the pit is filling up on its own. So go ahead and maybe, maybe we should tell the first field that he's obligated to dam up, dam up the channel. The channel shouldn't flow into his field and he should just draw off the channel like everyone else, but not allow the channel to actively fill up the entire pit. Kamashan, that's not the case. Kamashan, that's what? That we allow him to go ahead and... We allow the channel to naturally fill up his irrigation ditch. Mostly just one more line. Amr Avuna Bar Tachlifa, Hashta Delo Itmar, Hilchasa Lo Kimar Velo Kimar, Kol Da'alim Gvar. Mostly this is quite fascinating. Since we did not decide that Allah like Rav or like Shmuel, meaning again, that who gets first rights? Who gets first rights? The fields upstream or the fields downstream means Amach Lokis, Kol Da'alim Gvar. Mostly Kol Da'alim Gvar means whoever is strongest wins. In other words, whoever, whoever, I'm sorry? Oh, sorry. So, sorry. sorry, this seems to share a little bit this looking of that, inshallah. So we'll see what this means. We'll see, we're going to stop over here, but again, what the Gemara is saying will be over here is the Machlokas Rabbit Shmuel is not resolved, and therefore, essentially, whoever gets to dam off there, whoever, whoever, whoever is the best dammer, well, again, I'm definitely misusing this word, right? But again, whoever has the ability to dam off the water first, to channel off the water first, that's the one ultimately, again, who gets the rights. Which we'll say, called Al-Gvar is another way of saying, you all have equal rights. That's really what it's saying is, we're not really mechalic between upstream and downstream. If your field is off the river, if you are irrigated off the river, everyone has equal water rights. So whoever goes ahead and manages to siphon off the water first, ultimately, again, has the ability to do so. Now, both said, we'll stop over here, but we'll see again, this is true as long as your damning actions do not go ahead and adversely impact someone else. If what you do adversely impacts someone else, in your Hashem, to be continued tomorrow. Shkoyach.